This morning as you're seated, if you have your Bible, God's Word, however you read God's Word, take it out. This morning we're going to be back in Luke chapter 10, so turn back to Luke chapter 10. In just a moment we'll look at a few verses there. Before we turn over to Luke chapter 10 though, as a church we are memorizing the Sermon on the Mount starting in Matthew chapter 5. And so we are going to memorize Matthew 5, hopefully 6 and 7 over the next few weeks. So we are just going to be repeating that on Sunday morning. So last week I showed you mercy and I put the first two verses on the screen, but this morning there is no mercy. Not from John anyway, God will provide mercy, but I won't. So this morning you've got to say it on your own. So you're going to say it with me, okay? So we're going to do verses 3 and 4. And I told you that I am memorizing this out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. So I know if you're like me and you memorize, especially the Beatitudes out of the King James, it sounds a little different and it's hard for you to say, but you need to memorize it again. So this is a good way to memorize it. So I'm going to say it, but you're going to say it with me, amen? That was horrible. You're going to say it with me, amen? I hope you learned it. So we're going to go in verse starting in 3. So you ready? I'll start. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Then verse 4. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Amen. So just memorize it as just a wonderful practice. It is a wonderful discipline, spiritual discipline, to memorize Scripture, to hide God's Word in your heart. Not only so that it will protect you, keep you from sin, as the Bible says, But so when you have a time of need or when someone you love has a time of need and when you want to share with them, the word of God flows out of you and flows to them and he can speak to them through you. So next week, we'll move on to verses five and six there, Matthew five. And you never know, next week, we might start in verse one and go all the way through verse six. So don't forget what you memorized before. Amen. And we'll just do this week after week. And I know God will bless it. Well, this morning, we're going to continue kind of a sermon I did a few weeks ago out of Luke chapter 10 and really finish this sermon. And it's just part of all the same as we come to the context here in Scripture. I want you to understand that. So in just a moment, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the things that really, I guess, frightens me, I guess, I don't know, concerns me, especially about the church in America and even churches around us here in Tuscaloosa County, as I really believe that most churches, I believe most Christians do not know why they exist. Why do you live right here, right now, in the time period in which you live? Why did God not put you in the 17th century or the 16th century? Why are you born to live in 2019 in the United States of America, living in the context where He put you? Do you know why you exist? Does this church know why we exist? A few months ago, Barna Research did a research study, and they did a study of churchgoers in America. Now, these just aren't people out on the street that never go to church, or this those who go to church at Christmas and Easter. These are regular attenders of church, churchgoers in America. And they asked churchgoers in America this question, what is the Great Commission? And out of all the churchgoers in America that they surveyed, 51% had no clue what the Great Commission was. And not only did 51% not know what the Great Commission was, 25 more percent knew that it was in the Bible, but they weren't sure what it said, and they didn't know where it was in the Bible. So 76% of Christians don't know the commission or the command that Jesus Christ gave us just before he ascended up into heaven in Matthew 28, 19. And the verses tell us, commands us, commissions us to go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. That is why the church exists. That's why Northport Baptist Church exists. That's why you exist if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. To go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? So that they can know God through Jesus Christ. And become part of the kingdom of God. All through the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And the problem for us is we don't even know what the kingdom of God is. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, when we get to Matthew 6, we're going to read a verse of Scripture where Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, how many people in this room can raise their hand and say, yes, I seek first the kingdom of God? Very few of any of us can say that. We seek a lot of things, but the kingdom of God is not it. We seek money, and we seek jobs, and we seek our family, and we seek our football team, and comfort, and all these things. But very rarely do we seek ye first the kingdom of God. Why is the kingdom of God so important to Jesus Christ? That is what he talked about. Not only at the beginning of his ministry, if you go read the very end just before he goes to heaven, Acts 1-3, the Bible says that after he rose from the dead, he meets with his disciples over a period of 40 days, and guess what he talks to them about? Go read Acts 1-3. The kingdom of God. Now in this world, there are two kingdoms. And I'm not talking about temporal kingdoms like the United Kingdom or even the United States of America. Those kingdoms are temporary. They're here today. They will be gone tomorrow. But there are two eternal kingdoms that will last forever and ever. And that is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of darkness, which is ruled by Satan, the prince of the air, the prince of this earth... The kingdom of darkness does everything in its power to keep you from coming to God or being restored to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the kingdom of God does the very opposite. It does everything in its power to make you right with God through Jesus Christ by telling and sharing and going to the ends of the earth and making disciples. And we are part of the kingdom of God. God's activity on this earth right now, His missional activity, His sending activity, everything He does, part of that kingdom is to make people right with God. That's why Jesus Christ came to this earth. For God so loved what? The world that He gave His one and only Son. So that they can believe. And you and I are part of that kingdom. And we have been given a command. We have been given a commission to do what Jesus Christ says. Now here's the problem. For me, and I think it's a problem for you. Because I was born in the United States of America. And most of you in this room were born in the United States of America. And because we were born here, and don't get me wrong, I love and I'm so thankful that I'm born here, but because we're born here and because we live in a democratic republic, we do not understand kingdom. And we definitely do not understand kingdom authority. And I'll give you an example. Okay, let's just say this morning, Donald Trump walks through those back doors and he walks down to the altar of this church, the President of the United States, and he looks up at me and he says, John, I want you to say this or I want you to do this. Do you know what I have the right to do as a citizen of the American of the United States? What can I do? I can do to Donald Trump, I can go, I can, can I not? Now, I wouldn't do that, but I can, because Donald Trump, even as the President of the United States, cannot make me do anything. Zero, nothing. If I am not breaking a law, no one can tell me what to do and make me do it, Right? Yes, that's part of being a citizen of the United States of America. But now guess what? Let's just say that I wasn't a citizen of the United States of America and I was born in Saudi Arabia. 
And rather than Donald Trump walking through those doors, the king of Saudi Arabia walked down and he stood at this altar and he said, John, I want you to say this or I want you to do this. Do you know what would happen to me if I go to the king of Saudi Arabia if I'm a Saudi Arabian? My head gets chopped off. That's what happens to me. We do not understand that because we don't understand kingdom because of where we were born. And we definitely don't understand kingdom authority. But guess what? If you're a part of the kingdom of God, guess who your king is? Jesus Christ is your king. You should know that one, by the way. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is our king. And guess what? When Jesus Christ tells us to do something, when he gives us a commission or a command, what are we supposed to do? Do it. But here's what we do. Not today, Jesus. I got more on my plate than I can handle. So maybe tomorrow. And we do that every day of our life. And we don't do what the king tells us to do. And in our verses in Luke chapter 10, the king tells us to do something. Not only does he tell us to do something, he gives us a pattern to follow. The only problem is we choose not to. In Luke chapter 10, I told you that as we get to this part of the chapter of Luke, we've come to a part where Jesus is getting close to his death. In Luke chapter 10, he's only months before he is going to Jerusalem and before he's going to go to the cross and die. So in Luke chapter 10, a lot changes. Jesus starts changing his tone of voice. He starts changing what he is saying. And he starts talking to his disciples, his followers, you and me, a lot more direct. Because Jesus is preparing us for a time when he goes to heaven. And he's preparing us for that time while he's in heaven until he returns. We have to live on this earth. And guess what? We have to be Jesus Christ until he comes back. And he's preparing us for that. And so he starts talking to his disciples in a different way, talking to us in a different way. And as he's doing that in Luke chapter 10, the Bible says that a religious leader, an expert in the religious law, comes up to him. And he comes up with one purpose. He wants to trick Jesus into saying something he shouldn't say so they can use it against him. So this teacher of the religious law comes to Jesus and asks, honestly, the most important question in the Bible. He asks this. He says to Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was proud of the question, but Jesus flips the table and he says, well, you know the Bible. Why don't you tell me? So the religious expert says, well, I'll just quote the Old Testament. So he quotes a verse in Deuteronomy and he says, well, we're to the love of the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he thinks he's really smart, so he says, well, hey, I'll quote a verse out of Leviticus. Hey, in Jesus, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves." He's proud of himself. And Jesus says, you're right. You do that, you'll inherit eternal life. The only problem, he realized he's in trouble really quick. Because there was no way on this earth that he could love the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Neither can we, by the way. And there was sure no way on earth that he could love his neighbor as himself. How many of you could do that? None of us. So he knew he was in trouble, so he starts backpedaling. He starts thinking, well, how can I get out of this one? So he asks Jesus a question. He says, well, well, Jesus, who's my neighbor? So all Jesus does is tell a story. We're going to read it. Out of Luke 10. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 30. That's where we're going to start. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he was attacked by bandits. 
They stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Verse 32. A Levite or a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying, and he also passed on the other side. But then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man, and if his bill is higher than this, I will pay you the next time I am here. Verse 36. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor? The man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. And the man replied, the religious leader replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes. Now go and do the same. Now one of the reasons that we're going through the book of Luke verse by verse is so that you will understand stories like this in their context. Because most of the time, every time I have ever heard the parable of the Good Samaritan preach, 90 times out of 100, Somebody will preach this parable and they will just preach this parable and they'll talk about the parable and they will talk about it in terms that we should be good to those in need. We should help those in need. We should have compassion on those in need. We should feed the hungry. We should clothe those without clothes. And should we do that? Well, of course we should do that because the Bible tells us to do that in other places. But guess what? You don't get that from this parable or you shouldn't. Because in the context of Luke chapter 10, all this parable is doing is answering a question. And what is the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the question that Jesus is answering with this parable. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be restored to God? So what does Jesus do? He tells a story. And in this story, we have the gospel. We have the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation in this story, we are all traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a downward path, literally. Jerusalem's up on a hill. Jericho's down in a valley. You are traveling down. And ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been going down and down and down and down, away from God, away from God. And as we are traveling that road, we are attacked by Satan. And we are beaten. And we are stripped of our goodness. We are stripped of our righteousness. And we are left bleeding and dying and hopeless and helpless on the side of the road. And religion comes by. Truckloads of priests, truckloads of Levites, they come by. And what do they do? Rather than helping us, they pass on the other side. And maybe while they're passing, they say, hey, you do this. Get up and help yourself. Brush yourself off and you can make it. What good does that do us? Zero, because you can never make it to God by yourself. But then, thank God, the Good Samaritan comes. Jesus Christ comes. And he sees us and he feels compassion for us, brokenness for us. And he comes and he picks us up and he carries us somewhere we cannot carry ourselves. He carries us to God and he saves us and he pays our sin debt that we could not pay. And he gives us a home in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. And that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. But then he throws a curveball. Because at the very end, as he's preparing his disciples to live on this earth without him until he returns, what does he tell us to do? To 
same thing. Go and do the same. You and I, followers of Jesus Christ, if you know him as Lord. Are to be the good Samaritan. We're to see those people broken and helpless with no hope. And what are we to do for them? Are we to feed them, to clothe them, to help them? Sure. But if that's all we do, what do we do? All we do is condemn them to a lifetime of existence without God. So what are we to do? We're to give them Jesus. And how do we do that? We have to tell them about Jesus. Listen, don't believe lies that you hear in church. Because you hear lies in church. You ever heard that? I've heard this lie all my life. I've heard preachers say, well, I know people that would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Don't buy that lie. Because listen to me. People are not saved by your actions. No matter how good your actions are. The Bible says in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And if we don't speak truth into their lives and we don't give people Jesus Christ so that they can come to him through faith, by grace, they will never be saved. Go read Romans chapter 10. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name. But then he goes on, Paul asks a question. How can they call on him to save them if they have not believed? And how can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells? And then Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 7. Blessed are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news of salvation. We have to speak truth. We have to speak the truth of Jesus. That's what he has called us to do. So in these verses, I just want you to see that and I want you to see what we've been called to do as the church. And I just want you to see two words real quick, real specifically, because these two words are paramount of what we are called to be and what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the first word is not a word you're going to like. Listen to what Luke 10, 33 says. Just listen. Then a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. A despised Samaritan. Now, who is the Samaritan in this story? Jesus. Was Jesus despised? Yes. Isaiah 53, greatest chapter in the Old Testament. Because 600 years before Jesus Christ was ever born, Isaiah 53 tells us exactly who Jesus was and exactly what he would do. Listen to Isaiah 53 3. He, talking about Jesus, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Jesus was despised. Now, what has he called us to do at the end of the story? Go and do the same. So if Jesus was despised, guess what we're going to be? Despised. You don't believe me? Listen to what the book of John says. John 15, the words of Jesus. Verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If the world hated Jesus, the world is going to hate us. Back before the first of the year, 
I started looking for a verse in Scripture that God wanted me to pray for our church in 2019. I do that every year, just before the first of the year. And I've prayed verses out of Isaiah 43 and Isaiah 60 and other verses in Acts. But this year, 2019, God gave me a verse of Scripture in Acts chapter 4. And Acts chapter 4 just says, When the believers were scattered, they preached the good news of Jesus everywhere they went. So God laid that on my heart, and I started praying that verse for our church. But then I started asking the question, well, God, why do you want me to pray that particular verse for our church? There's a lot of verses of Scripture in the Bible that I could pray. Why that particular one? And I just thought in my mind, well, that's a great verse of evangelism. If we are scattered and we preach the gospel everywhere we go, people are going to be saved, so maybe that's why God wants us to do it. We need to become an evangelistic church. So that's what I thought, so that's what I started praying. Throughout this year... As we've been going through the book of Luke, and then in particular, I've been doing a study on the book of Revelation on Wednesday mornings. I've realized why God wanted me to pray that verse, and it's this reason. It's because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be hated in this world. And you are going to be persecuted. I believe with all my heart, that we're getting close to Jesus Christ's return. Now, I can't tell you when that is. The Bible says no one knows that day, not even Jesus. But I'm telling you, we're closer than we've ever been. And I believe just before he comes back, the church, us, is going to end the exact same way it started. Now, how did the church start? If you go read right after Jesus is resurrected and he spends those 40 days with the church just before he ascends up into heaven, he gives them one last verse, one last word in Acts 1.8. And he says this, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses everywhere. Starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he goes to heaven. The church had no clue what he was talking about. So the only thing they knew to do was to pray. There were only 120 believers at this point. 120 believers, but they pray for 10 straight days. They pray, they pray, they pray. And then Jesus does what he says he will do. He sends the Holy Spirit, and they receive power, and they become his witnesses. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands and he preaches, and guess what happens? There's a harvest. 3,000 people are saved that very day. But not just that day. Thousands and thousands of people keep coming. And in just the first year, year and a half or so of the church, Almost 200,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It starts with 120, and in just a matter of a year or so, 200,000 people come to faith. The church is doing great. They're sharing everything they have, their food, their possessions, their homes. They're being the church. They think everything is perfect. The only problem is they didn't listen to the king. Because the king said, when the Holy Spirit becomes upon you, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Where? Everywhere. Jerusalem, yes, it'll start there. Then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Guess what the church did? They stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't take the gospel anywhere but Jerusalem. And so what did God do? You have to read Acts 8.1 to see that. This is what the Bible says. It says, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Keeps going. Verse 2. Some devout men came and buried Stephen, a man of the church who was killed. And then verse 3. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, 
dragging out both men and women, throwing them into prison. Then you get verse 4 of Acts chapter 8. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. When did the church do what God called them to do? Only when they were persecuted. Only when they were hated. Only when they were being drugged out of their houses and thrown into jail did they do what the king commanded. And guess what? The church is going to end the same way it began. How do I know? Because the Bible says it. Listen to what the Bible is going to be like just before Jesus Christ comes back. Matthew 24, 14. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. Then the end will come. Now who's going to hear before Jesus Christ comes? The world, all the nations. And how are they going to hear it? Are they going to hear it because we go out and tell them? No, because unfortunately, guess what we don't do? We don't go out and tell them. Think about this. Has there ever been a group of believers living on this earth in 2,000 years, like the group of believers here in America, that have been blessed with more wealth, with more biblical education, with more technology? Has there ever been a group blessed in such a way? No. Never. But what are we doing with all that wealth, with all those blessings, with all the technology, with all the education? What are we doing with it? Well, we're building our own kingdoms. We're trying to see how many people we can get in our churches and what we can become rather than doing what the king said. Do you realize this morning that more people on this earth know the name Coca-Cola than know the name Jesus? Why? Because Coca-Cola understands the principle of going to the ends of the earth and promoting their product. But the church hadn't figured what Jesus set out. So what is he going to do? Exactly what he did in the book of Acts. How do I know? Because he tells us. Listen to what he says later on in Luke. In Luke 21. He says, before all of this occurs... What's going to occur? The good news about the kingdom is going to be preached. But before all this occurs, there will be a great time of persecution. You will be dragged into the synagogues, into the prisons, and you. Now, who's he talking to? This is personal pronouns. You, you and me, his followers. And you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers, your relatives and friends, they will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my follower. But not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls we are going to be hated the bible promises it it's a promise of scripture but guess what we're to do for those who hate us go back to the parable of the good samaritan guess what that jewish man hated the samaritan why do you think he was despised what did the samaritan do anyway look at verse 33 Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. 
This is who Jesus is. We've seen this word earlier in Scripture. I talked about it in Luke chapter 10 at the beginning. But listen to what Matthew 9, 35, the same verses at the beginning of Luke 10. Listen to what it says. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about what? The kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Now, verse 36, important. When he, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were confused and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers in the fields. Now The word there in Matthew 9 it's the same word in Luke chapter 10, compassion. And we do not have an English word to convey the meaning of this Greek word that we translate compassion. A better word would be grief or sorrow or mourning or brokenness or heartache. But even those don't describe what Jesus felt when he saw the crowds of people that were helpless and hopeless like a sheep without a shepherd. Why? Because they didn't know God. And there was no one to get them to God except him. And he knew they wouldn't believe in him. And Jesus comes up to Jerusalem just before he's going to be crucified in Luke 19. The Bible says this, but as he came closer to Jerusalem, he saw the city ahead and he began to weep. He began to sob uncontrollably because he knew there was a city of people filled with just hundreds and hundreds of religious that would never know him. And he wept. He felt compassion for them. And I believe with all my heart, when God looks down from heaven and he looks on Tuscaloosa County and Tuscaloosa Northport and all the surrounding cities, I believe he weeps and he feels compassion because there are so many people here that even though they know the name Jesus, will never believe in that name for salvation. And it breaks him. But it doesn't break us. Because we don't even care. Now we say we care. When's the last time you wept? When's the last time you mourned? When's the last time you sobbed uncontrollably? And not just wept or mourned or sobbed, but wept or mourned or sobbed for someone that you love that doesn't know Jesus Christ that is lost. When's the last time you shed a tear? I'm not asking you if you've shared the gospel this week. I'm asking you, do you care? That people are lost all around us. They're lying on the side of the road and they're broken and they're beaten and they're helpless and they're hopeless. And we, just like the priest, go to the other side of the street and keep on walking. But the king tells us to be the good Samaritan. To feel compassion and to go and to pick them up and carry them somewhere they can't get themselves. Carry them to God through Jesus. Keep on walking. And we feel nothing. How is that possible? If we know and love Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be. But we've been deceived into believing that we don't have a purpose or we're not part of the plan. That's for someone else. But no, if you are part of the kingdom, the king has called you to go and do likewise. And 
I know some of you can't wait for the sermon to be over so that you can walk out and forget about it. This is something you shouldn't be able to forget. We truly believe what we say we believe about eternity and about an eternity without God in a place called hell. If we believe what Jesus Christ says and the descriptors he uses being a place of eternal torment, being a place like fire, being a place where your thirst is never quenched and on and on and on. If we believe that, but yet we leave people lying on the side of the road, then what does that say about us? We're heartless. But he's called us to have compassion. I wish I could tell you how to be a good Samaritan. But I'm telling you, before you can be the good Samaritan, you have to care. You have to care. You have to seek ye first the kingdom of God. Back several years ago, I got to travel to a city in North Africa. And I want to show you a picture of the city on a screen. The city, in Islam anyway, is a holy city. Because there in the mosque, the green roof building, the great grandson of Muhammad, who brought Islam to North Africa, is buried there. And this is one of the cities that, in Islam anyway, you can pilgrimage to and do certain things to basically earn credit with God, Allah. So for centuries and centuries and centuries, this city has been cut off to infidels. Now, an infidel is you and me, just someone who doesn't believe in Islam. But only a few years ago did this city open up so an infidel can go in there and walk the streets. And for whatever reason, I got to be one of the first infidels to walk the streets of that city. And I'll never forget walking through the streets of that city and the looks that I got as I walked the streets. Now, if looks could kill, I'd be dead. I mean, I was hated as I walked through those streets, literally. I don't know that I've ever thought of myself hated, but in that city, I was hated. And I can remember walking those streets and seeing thousands and thousands of people from infants to those almost to the point of death because they were so old. And on every face I saw, I saw hopelessness. That city is roughly 50 or 60,000 people and there's not one known believer in that entire city. Not one. And so after we walked the streets of that city, we went up to the mountainside, which is where this picture came from. And we stood and we just prayed over that city. But without a miracle of God... That city will never hear the name of Jesus because it is shut off. It is cut off from the world. And as sad as that makes me, 
And as much as that breaks my heart. What breaks my heart more. Is to stand week after week. And look at faces that I know has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for whatever reason, you still haven't given him your life. And I know you're thinking, well, John, how can you know that? Well, I'll tell you how I can know that. Jesus himself says, they will know you by your fruit. Some of you, your trees are barren. Because you bear no fruit. You might be thinking, well, who are you to judge me? You can't judge me. Well, yeah, I can. According to Scripture, I can judge you. And I'm commanded to judge you. And I'm to judge you, wow, by your fruit. Why? Because if you don't bear fruit, you need Jesus Christ. And I'm to judge you so that I can share Jesus with you. That's why. Our churches in America are full of people who hear the name of Jesus week after week after week, but yet never believe, never surrender, never call him king. This morning. Maybe this story was for you that Jesus told 2,000 years ago. Maybe you're the man or you're the woman that is lying on the side of the road, broken and beaten and hopeless. But I want you to know this morning that there is a good Samaritan and his name is Jesus and he will come to you. And if you will just believe in him and call on his name to save you, he will pick you up and he will carry you to God and you will be with him forever according to the promises of Scripture. But if you don't, according to the promises of Scripture, you will be eternally separated from God forever. Jesus is here this morning just waiting. Waiting for your call. So This morning I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. So I'm just going to ask everyone in this room to bow their head. And close their eyes and no one in this place is looking. Their eyes are shut. Their head is bowed. And I'm not going to ask you to do anything hard. I'm not going to ask you to walk or raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do any of that. All I'm going to ask you to do this morning, if you feel the Spirit of God speaking to your heart in a way that my words cannot, and you know that you need Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to pray a prayer. Now please understand, this prayer does not save you, and a prayer has never saved anyone. All a prayer is, is just your way to convey your faith. It is just your way to communicate to God that you need Him. So if you need Him this morning, in your heart, whisper this prayer. Say, Jesus, I need You. I am broken.
the Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. Save me. I give it all to you. Lord, I thank you for salvation. And I thank you that you made salvation easy so that we can know. Lord, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer that they can walk out of this place knowing that they are a child of God through Jesus Christ. Lord, for the rest of us who came into this room knowing that truth, Lord, I pray that you would give us a new heart. I pray that you would give us eyes to see. You would give us feelings to feel. Help us just be you until you return. So, Lord, bless this time. Use it for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we close, we're just going to close with a time for you to respond to God. Maybe this morning you need to pray. Maybe you need to weep like Jesus wept. You want to come to this altar and pray for someone? pray for them. Maybe you need prayer and you just want someone to pray for you. If you come, we'll pray for you. Maybe you still need Jesus. You want us to show you in Scripture about Jesus. Come, we'll show you Jesus. This morning, whatever you need, you come. So stand as we worship.